Good morning. Good morning. All right. People are coming in. So we're uh, continuing our series on missing the point because we've been going through the book of Luke, and it turns out the book of Luke is pretty long. And so we've been going through this for a few years now. We're focusing on chapter 11, uh, and uh, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been talking about how chapter 11 is the chapter where, you know, kind, loving Jesus is not so much present. It's actually the, um, you're getting on my nerves, so please stop doing what you're doing. Jesus shows up. He's the one, he's kind of correcting people, you know, like, okay, yeah, you know, I love you, but yeah, that thing you're doing is kind of irking me. And so we call this, this chapter 11, we call it missing the point because Jesus starts pointing out the things that the people are missing on. And, and here's the thing, here's the interesting thing about this, okay? When Jesus points out what people are doing wrong, it's most of the time, it's mostly people who are religious, the people who are, you know, doing the wrong things, like immoral things, Jesus has more kind words to say to them. But for the people who are acting righteous and people who are acting like they're a goody two-shoe, those are the people that Jesus seems to have an issue with. And so if that's you, then this might, you know, be speaking to you. I don't know. <laughs> so anyways, uh, uh, we're in June now, so school's almost out, right? And for us, you know, for me and my wife, my family, we, we just finished a season where we put our son Justin in Little League, and he just played his last game yesterday. And so I know, thank you, because I, you know, as a parent, this is the first time being involved in Little League in that way. And um, it's been fun watching him play. And, but he, here's the thing. This is the first time he's played baseball ever. And I thought I could just put him on the field and he'll just play baseball, you know, grab a bat, grab a ball, grab a glove, and he'll just do fine. But I, it turns out, what I've taken for granted is that I know how the game is played. Not like I'm an expert, but I just know that there's three outs and then you're, you know, I mean, three strikes and you're out, and then there's three outs and you have to switch sides and all that kind of, I, I know the basics of baseball, right? And those of you guys, some of you guys are rolling your eyes. I, I totally understand. I know I'm going to be judged. But, but here, here's the thing. Um, I didn't put into consideration that Justin wouldn't understand the rules of the game. I would put him onto the field and, you know, when the coach said, okay, now we're going to practice running around the base, he actually ran around the base. Like, he didn't... <laughs> touched in the bases the first time he played. And I would try to teach him, like, you have to get to the base before the ball gets there. And he looks at me with this blank stare, like, okay. Like, you know that moment when he says, okay, but you know he doesn't really understand? That's what's happening. And I thought, how can I teach my son the rules of the game? And I thought, oh, we'll just turn on the TV. The Dodgers were playing, the Angels, were, whoever, you know, we're like, let's just watch TV. And you know the camera angles? You see like the camera's behind the pitcher, and you see him throw the ball and hits the ball, and the guy runs to first base, but you don't see the overall game because he hits the ball, he runs, and he gets to first base, but, you know, like, and professional rules are different from the Little League rules. At six years old, there's no such thing as a ball because it's a coach that's pitching the ball to you, right? And so, and in Little League, there's no such thing as an out. You could run to first base, and the ball gets there before you. You're still on the base because they want to encourage participation over... Uh, anyways, watching professional baseball was not the best way to teach my son how to play the game. So then I thought, I know, I had this really, really old NES game. And if you guys know where NES is, it's, it's the original baseball game for the Nintendo. And it's like this, the camera is this overview. So you can see the hitter and the first base, second base, third base. You can see where the ball is going. And there's never cuts in the angle. You can just see the whole thing happening all at once. So I introduced him this game to him, and he finally got the game. He's like, oh, I get it. So the ball is going to first base after run there first because, you know, oh, and then you have to go to second base. And third, oh, that's why it's called home because you start where you end. And he was starting to, everything was starting to click. And I thought, this is great. I'm trying to teach my son the game of baseball so he could be out there playing with his friends. And I found a way to teach it to him. Now, here's the problem with that. 
as I taught him how to play baseball on a video game, which I thought would eventually translate to him playing outdoors with his friends, what happened instead was he got addicted to video games, and he didn't want to go outside anymore. So for about two weeks, I would say, you want to go outside and play? And he'll be like, no, I'll just play this. No, he loves the game. He loves playing outdoors now. He actually prefers that over watching TV at times, so I'm like, yay. But have you ever been in a situation where you had an original intention, like, oh, I'm going to do this so that this outcome would happen, but it actually accomplishes the exact opposite? You guys know what I'm talking about? So, so the question that I want to approach today is this. Have you ever lost the original intention of something? You're like, I, I want to do this one thing. I'm going to try really hard to do this one thing. And in doing so, somewhere along the line, it actually accomplished the exact opposite. In other words, you had an original purpose, but the purpose ended up being the opposite of what the original purpose was. And, and this is, I think, the thing that Jesus is really trying to talk about in the next part of chapter 11, which is Luke chapter 11, verse 43. You see, Jesus is kind of going over these things with the, the religious people at the time. Like, these are the things that you guys have gotten wrong. Here's the list of them. And then he goes into this section called the woes. And for the past few weeks, we've been talking about the woes. When Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, which are the religious people. Woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you religious people. Woe to you people who think you're better than everybody else. And last week, by the way, if you guys were here last week, Daniel and Jordan did an amazing job, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I was hooked. I'm like, oh, that's so good. Yeah, i got to get them up more often. Okay, right. So today we're looking at the next woe, which is verse 43. And here's good news and bad news. Good news is we're only looking at one verse in Luke. The bad news is that this one verse kind of spreads open into over a dozen verses, and we're going to look at all of them, so that's the bad news. Okay, so let's start with the one verse, verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, this is Jesus speaking, you religious people. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace. So Jesus points out two things here. It's like, you guys, I'm so sick and tired of you guys. Oh, man, you guys like these two things. You guys like these seats, whatever that is, and you like this respectful greeting, whatever that might be. Okay, so we're going to be looking at those two things, and in doing so, we're going to be looking at several other things. But when he talks about the seat, the most important seat in a synagogue, he's talking about this one specific seat. It's called the seat of Moses. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And when he talks about respectful greeting, in those days, if you're a religious person and you're in the marketplace or in public and somebody sees you and you see somebody else, right, the rule was you have to greet the religious person first <clears throat> with more respect than you would another person. So it's like, woe to you Pharisees. You guys like the seat of Moses and you guys like to be respected on the marketplace. Like, is there anything wrong with being respected? Why is Jesus so against this? Now, like I said, there's only this one verse we're going to be looking at today. But this is something you have to understand. When you read the book of Luke, there are some parts in the book of Luke that you come across. By the way, the book of Luke is like a biography of Jesus, right? When you get into the book of Luke, there's some parts in the book of Luke when you read it and you're like, how come Luke didn't give us more information on that? And the reason why is because Luke has written this book called the biography of Jesus, the, Luke, the book of Luke. He wrote this with the assumption that you've already read another version of the biography of Jesus. At the time that Luke was written, there were other versions of the Jesus story that was in circulation. And one of them is called the Gospel According to Matthew, which is another biography that predates this one. So he's assuming that you already read the book of Matthew, and then in addition to that, he decided to write the book of Luke. And so what scholars, what we call it is when we get into that part of the passage, we're like, that's not enough information. I have to go to another biography to get more information on that. That same story that has more information in another biography, 
We call that a parallel passage. A parallel passage is, hey, that story is the same as this one, but this one gives you more information. That's what a parallel passage is. And so today we're going to be looking at the parallel passage of Luke chapter 11, verse 43. And that is found in Matthew chapter 23. And so we're going to start that from here. Everything, this is Jesus speaking. Everything the Pharisees do is done for people to see. So Jesus starts off by saying, you know, you religious people, I know why you guys are doing the things you do. It's because you want people to recognize you. Well, I'll expand on that. He says this. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor and at banquets and, at, at, and the most important seats in the synagogue. So he lists four things here. He says, you guys do things to stand out. And he says, well, there's that phylactery thing you do. And you're like, what's that? We'll talk about that in a second. Oh, you do that tassel thing. We'll talk about that in a second too. And oh, you, like you like to sit in the place of honor. And that's explained. Like if you go to a banquet, they have the VIP seat for certain people that are important. And he's basically saying, you guys do everything to be seen. Like, for example, you like to sit the most important seat at a banquet. So that's self-explanatory. And then, the, and, so, and then we talk about this important seat. So we're going to be looking at these three things because this is going to start to reveal to you what, why Jesus is so ticked off at this part in the story. So let's start with phylacteries. Phylacteries. What are phylacteries? In the Hebrew, because this is a Hebrew culture in this story, it's called a teflon. And, and and this has its origin in the book of Deuteronomy. So I'm going to give you a quick sneak peek at that. This is what it says. This is after God pulled these people called the Israelites out of slavery, okay? And as they're teaching them how to love one another, he says this. He says, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. So this is what he's saying. Everything that I've taught you for the past 40 years, you're about to go into this place called the promised land. Everything that I taught you, how to get along with each other, how to take care of the people who are visiting you, like everything that you need to know on how to have a good society, a good community, okay? I want you to do everything you can to remember it, so with your minds, right? But I also want you to, to bind it on your hands. That means in everything that you think and everything that you do, I want you to keep these things that I taught you for the past 40 years. He's like, can you guys do that? And they're like, oh, okay, we'll try really hard. It's like, well, you might, if you need a reminder, then maybe you should take this verse, like, literally. So take the verses, that I, the, the, the teachings I taught you, okay? And I want you to literally tie it on your hands and in your, on your head. So this practice is still practiced today. This is what it looks like in today. You see that box? He's not trying to be a unicorn, okay? That's not what he's trying to do. That box right there on his forehead is called a phylactery. Now, that's pretty big, um, the oldest version of phylactery that the archaeologists were, archaeologists were able to find was the size of a dime, so it's pretty small. And what they would do is if you open the box, there's these small compartments, and what you would do is you would write on this small parchment, as small as you can, some of the commands of the Old Testament. And you roll it up, and you try to put it into each of the compartments, and you close it, and you put it on your head, and you tie it on the back. That's a phylactery or a teflon if you're a Hebrew. So that... I mean, the original verse in De Deuteronomy says, you know, symbolically do it. But these guys did it literally because to them, they're like, we need to show everybody that, that we're taking it very seriously. And you know how it said also to bind it on your hand? Here's a picture of somebody binding it on their hands right there. You see that box right there? That's a phylactery. What you do is you put it right here at your elbow area, and you make sure that's pointing inwards. And I'll tell you why, that, why he does that in a second. And then he ties it around their hand, and then he wraps it around their finger. So it goes from their arm to the tip of their finger. And when they put their arms down, the phylactery is pointing at their heart. So this is their symbolic way of saying, and everything that I do comes from the heart. 
So it comes from the heart into the tips of my fingers. So in everything that I do, I'm doing it for God. Because my heart and God's heart were like BFFs. Like we are so connected. That's, that's, that's what's happening here. Okay, like I said, in, in the olden days, people have found like the smallest, like the oldest version of a phylactery is really, really small. But they've also discovered really wide and big ones, bigger than the ones that you just saw on, on the screen. Because when they're walking down the street and people see him with his huge phylacteries, they're like, oh, you're so holy. Oh my goodness. You, you and God must be like, oh my goodness, this is, I am nothing compared to you. And Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees. All you care about, I mean like, yeah, phylacteries in themselves are not bad, right? But the way that you're using it, I could tell right away in your heart, you're doing this because you want to be recognized. Tisk, tisk, tisk. And then he talks about tassels. What are these tassels? The tassels has its origins in the book of Numbers chapter 15. Let's take a look at that. Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels, in the Hebrew that's the word tzitzit, on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord. Okay, so this is an interesting thing. He says, I want you to put on these shawls, okay? And on the four corners of it, I want you to make sure you have tassels dangling from it. Here's a picture of a guy doing that in today, today's world. You can see that on the bottom. He actually has four. One you can see in the middle, another one on the side, and there's probably a few in the back. There's a total of four. And on each one, I don't know if you can see, but there's these five knots on it. In the book of Numbers, it kind of goes on to describe what it's supposed to look like. And the five knots in the, on the tassels, on the tzitzit, <clears throat> reminds them of the five books of the Torah. So every time they feel like they're being tempted, like God is saying, I want you to, be safe, to stay faithful to me. I want you to do the things that I ask you to do. This is for your good. This is going to bring love and care for people in your neighborhood. This is what I want you to do. And they're tempted not to do that. They could always look at their tzitzit and say, oh, what a good reminder. I should stop doing what I'm doing and go back to what God in, intended me to do in the first place. So you can imagine if you're walking down the street and you see a religious ruler and he has a tzitzit or a tassel dangling, but it's not just some regular da- tassel. It's, it's dragging on the floor. You know, It's like, whoa, look at that. That guy must never get tempted. Oh my goodness, he must be so holy. Oh, look at mine. Mine's so small. Uh, apparently they had an issue with size back then. Like, they look bigger. Th- I don't know. Okay. So, <clears throat> so there's the, the, the phylacteries, there's the tassel, and then the third thing that he brought up was this, the important seat of the synagogue. Now, for a long time, people thought this is just a figurative thing until maybe like three decades ago, uh, archaeologists found some synagogues that's dated to like the second, third century, which is two, three hundred years after Jesus, and they found this. And inscribed in it was actually the name of the person who donated the most money to get this built. So that has something to do with it. But on the other side, it said the seat of Moses. And on the seat, so this is what a seat of Moses is. It's the highest seat that's found in a synagogue before they met on a weekly basis, okay? And, but they didn't know what the purpose was it, uh, of that seat for a long time. As a matter of fact, there were writings about it describing what it should look like, right? They found out that, that it said that the person who sits on the, the seat of Moses should look just as tall as he is if he were to stand. So it's like a stool, a modern day, it's an ancient stool, basically, right? <clears throat> and so for a long time, people thought, oh, the seat of Moses is a place where the person sits to read the scrolls of Moses, like the Torah. But over time, people discovered that that's probably not the only reason, that the only thing that they use a seat for. And that is discovered in Exodus chapter 18. So let's take a look at that. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve the judge, serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him 
from morning till evening. Okay, here's a little context in what's happening here. So Moses, through the help of God, was able to bring people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and now they're in the middle of a desert. In the middle of the desert, Moses is teaching everybody, like, guys, I went up this mountain, I experienced God, I brought down these tablets, and now I'm going to give you instructions on how to live your life. But the problem is, the people who are around him can't memorize all 600 plus laws. So what did they do? What they did was, they went up to Moses and said, hey, there's a quarrel right here, and uh, we can't solve it. So Moses, can you tell us what the right thing is? And so Moses would say, well, according to the law that God gave me in the mountain, uh, you're right, you're wrong, so go and do this, and you'll be fine. They're like, okay, so they go away, right? And the next day, there's another person that comes to their door, his door, he's like, yes, what is it? He's like, well, we're having this thing, this quarrel that we can't solve, and we study the laws that you've given us, but there's nothing in there that says anything about it. It's like, it's like if my son came up to me and said, what does the Bible say about playing too many video games? And I'll be like, there's no verse about that, right? But Moses being a person who actually encountered, you know, God, he doesn't just look at the letter of the law. He also understands, well, if God were to write a law about that, this is how he would say that. So, so Moses was the judge who was telling people what was right and what was wrong. And after a while, every morning he wakes up, he'll like probably go to his secretary. He's like, hey, uh, what do I have planned for today? He's like, well, you're supposed to do these 10 things today. But you can't because if you look out your door, there's a long line of people. So he opens his tent, he looks outside, and there's this long line of people. And it's like, yep, I can't do any of those 10 things I plan to do. All right, first person come in. And so the, he'll sit down and counsel them and send off on their way. And according to this verse, he was doing this from morning to evening. And he was getting tired. And so next verse. When his father-in-law, Moses' father-in-law, saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you for, from morning till evening? Like, Moses, this isn't healthy for you. I mean, yeah, I understand that you're, you have this really important role, you know, being the mediator between God and the people, you know, and that's, that's honorable. That's a good job. You know, keep doing that. But this stuff is killing you. You've got to find a new way of dealing with this. So the father-in-law, he has a solution. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear themselves out. The work is too heavy for you, and you cannot handle it alone. Okay, you're right. Father-in-law, you're right. I I can't handle this anymore. If I go another day doing this, I'm just going to lose it. What's the solution? Next verse. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. It's like, look, you're this mediator guy, and you keep being that because that's a real important role. Teach them his decrees and his instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. So here, Moses' father-in-law says, what you're doing is good. It's not good. It's good, but it's not good. It's good because you're doing the work of God, but it's bad because it's, it's, it's wearing you thin. So here's my solution. He says this. So this is what I want you to do. Next verse. Select capable men from all the people, men who, here's a list, fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. You need to take your job description and you need to replicate in other people. You have to delegate. Because if you are the only person that's doing this, it's gonna, it's gonna kill you. And so these people right? Because there's thousands of people in the midst of Moses at this time. 
Moses gives them authority by looking at their personality. They're, they're like, okay, I see you as a person who's not going to look for dishonest gain. Because, you know, if you make decisions on behalf of people, there's a chance that you might be making decisions on behalf of your own interest, and that's not good. So we're going to pick specifically people who are trustworthy, people who fear God, people who do not like dishonest gain. And we're going to put you guys, judge, like many judges, over certain parts of the community. And Moses is like, oh, I feel a big weight come off my shoulders. Now, these people were known as people who sat at the seat of Moses. So this practice, practiced, like, it was continued for thousands of years all the way to the days of Jesus. And so these people, when, when Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, you like to sit at the seat of Moses, he's basically saying, you guys like to tell people what right and wrong is. You guys are acting as judge. Again, that's not a bad thing in itself, but look at this list, okay? We're going to review what we just talked about. Phylacteries. When people look at people who wear phylacteries, the big old kind, right? This is, they think, oh, you are a possessor of God's heart. So if you saw me wearing a big phylactery on my forehead and I'm walking around with this thing on my arm, and you're like, look at Cots. Like, look at how, how, how that big thing is pointing right at his heart and everything he's doing. He is so connected with God's heart. Man, I'm so glad he's my pastor. <laughs> All right, right. But that's what people would think, and that's what these Pharisees think that they're accomplishing, right? And the next thing, tassels. It's like, oh, man, he must be so perfect and holy. Why? Because every time he gets tempted, he just looks at his big old tassel and is like, oh, I'm not tempted anymore. Life is good, <laughs> right? So it's like, man, so you see these guys wearing huge tassels, huge phylacteries, like, these guys, they are so close to God. Like, they're so good, right? And they're so holy. Like, wow. And the people who see to Moses, and they are the ones who tell us what's right and wrong. And Jesus says, these things, that's a really important job description. These are good things, but I know your heart. When you do these things, you're not doing it because you want the world to be more loving. You're not doing these things because so that people get along. You're doing these things because you want to be noticed as someone who is powerful in the community. So this is what Jesus says to them. Everything, this is a repeat of what we read, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor and banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. It's like, woe to you because you're doing these things for yourself. You're not doing it for your community. And then he continues. He gets pretty heated after this. They love to be greeted and respected in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. There's nothing wrong about being called rabbi by other people, right? But they love the title so much they're like, the reason I'm doing this job is so that you could call me these names, these titles, that makes me feel good about myself. And then he goes on this rant. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are, uh, you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father. And by the way, it's okay to call your dad father, okay? But that's not the point he's making here. For you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Now, he's not saying you can never call a teacher a teacher. He's not saying you can't call your dad a father. He's not saying any of that, okay? If you take it out of context, that's what it says. But if you read it in context, that's not what he's saying. These three titles, rabbi, father, instructor, these three titles were titles that were well-respected in the day. It was more respected as the title of a, of a king because they believe that kings become kings because of people like rabbis and fathers and instructors, right? They were more well-regarded than doctors at the time, these were the top three titles that people would strive for. As a matter of fact, if there's like doctor, engineer, right, all that stuff, miles and miles on top of that would be rabbi, father, 
instructor. As a matter of fact, even the word father, the word Abba, is a name that they use to refer to God at times. That's why it was such a high-level name. So what Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying, you guys, you're doing all this because you want to be recognized as somebody who's just second to God, that you're higher in status than everybody else in the world. You walk around the neighborhood thinking you're better than everybody else. And then he says, but remember, the phylacteries, the tassels, the seed of Moses, all these things were given to you for one reason. And that reason is so that there could be love in the community. But instead, you're using it as a way to separate yourself and thinking you're better than the community. So God's laws were intended as an anchor, not a stepping stone. God gave you these things as a way to bring the community together. But instead, you saw that and said, this is an anchor. I'm going to step on top of this so I'm higher than everybody else. And then you see something else that God gives you and you use that as another stepping stone and another stepping stone and you work your way up because you love power so much, because you like recognition so much. You use the thing that God intended for good and you're using it as a way to boost your own ego. And God says, that's not good. This is why Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees. For you love the seats of Moses. You love to be recognized in the marketplace. You love the special greeting that you get from everybody else. You know, and this is, this is like really frustrating. Because, and, and I know this is frustrating to a lot of people because when I was in school, my professor would usually say this, like, because, you know, when he's going over some material, he, we're reading scripture and we're doing all this, you know, he's giving assignments. And then at one point, there's always one student, or maybe two, that raises his hand at, at one point in the class and says, uh, Professor, is this going to be on the test? And the professor usually just slams his book on the table and says, what if I told you it wasn't? Would you stop listening? It's like, oh, you can't say no. Or you, you can't, you, that's like a, you know, you don't want to answer that question, right? But the professor goes on to his long rant, and I've, I've had him for multiple classes, and he gives the same speech every time. He says, what happened to learning for the sake of learning? I'm teaching you something right now that I believe is valuable for your life, but all you're thinking about is trying to get an A in this class. What happened to learning for the sake of learning? It's almost like this. If I were to stand here and give you a, a sermon about loving God and how much God loves you, and then in the middle of the sermon, you raise your hand and say, excuse me, pastor, I have a question. I'm like, yeah, yeah, what is it? I don't take questions during a sermon, but sure, what is your question, right? And then he says, well, I'm thinking of running for president in a few years, and I know that question's going to come up. Where do I stand with, you know, what can I say to the people of America that's going to get me to get more votes from, especially in the evangelical circle? And I would say this. I am trying to teach you about the love of God for the sake of you knowing that God loves you so that you may love God back, but instead you're taking it and using it as a pedestal to gain attraction for something that, you know, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now. What happened to learning for the sake of learning? What happened to loving for the sake of loving? And in this case, God is saying this. God wants us to love others for the sake of loving others. It's like these, the tassels, the, the phylacteries, all these things I've given you for the sake of love. I've given you the seed of Moses. Why? So that you guys could get along with each other. So there won't be quarrels that happen in society that breaks apart societies. But instead, you're using this not for that sake, but you're using it for yourself, for your own personal gain. And that eventually creates division. And so Jesus doesn't stop there. Because at this point, he's probably looking at the Pharisees in the eyes. And it's like, you guys are so obsessed with power. You guys want to be better than everybody else. What is it? You know what? You, you want power? You want greatness? 
Fine, I'll give you greatness. Here's the, here's, here, he's like, here is the, the formula for greatness. Next verse. He says, the, greatness, the greatest among you will be your servants. Now, these Pharisees, they had servants. He's like, you want to be great Pharisees? You religious people, you want to be better than everybody else in society? Well, I'll give you, I'll tell you something. Here's some news for you. You know the servants that washed your feet this morning? You know those servants that work the weekend just to make sure that you're, you're, you're comfortable? Yeah, those are the great people in God's eyes. Well, what, what do you mean, Jesus? I don't understand. I thought we, the religious people, we were the greatest. Like, no, 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 no. Let me clarify what I meant to say. Next verse. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is what he's saying. If you take what God has given you and use it as a stepping stone to just boost yourself, right? And then you get there and you're like, oh, here's another thing God gave me. I'm going to step on that as a stepping stone. And you get to the very, very top where you're the most powerful person in society. And you get there and you look around and say, where is God? God is at the very first step looking up at you saying, I'm down here with the people who are serving you. I'm here with the people who are hungry. I'm here with the people who are disenfranchised. I'm here with the people who are outcasted. I'm here with the people who need me. I'm here with the people who are trying to make the society work. I'm here with the people who wants to love the world, love their neighbors. I don't know what you're doing up there, but I'm certainly not up there with you. Those who boast themselves to the highest places, he says, you'll be humbled. But the people who are on the bottom... Those are the people that I will exalt. What he's saying here is this. The power doesn't really count in the kingdom of God. That should not be the goal of a human being. And if you want to see example after example of how power corrupts people and humanity, read the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament. You'll find examples of that over and over and over again. The contrast is even more true. Love is the most valuable thing in the kingdom of God. Everything I've given you was meant so that you could love one another. I gave these things to you so that you could get along with each other. I gave you these laws in the Old Testament. Like, there's these strange laws that says, when you're going through your field and picking out stuff, you know, out of the bushes and the things you grew, like, don't go back to make sure you got everything because, why? Because I'm teaching you how to love. Because one day, the alien, the orphan, the widow, they're going to be hungry and they're going to come into your field and they're going to find some stuff there to take for themselves. The loving thing for you to do is to not go back and pick out all the things that you might have missed. He's like, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll discover that every law that I gave you has to do with love. Now, some of the things look really archaic in the Old Testament and that's totally understandable, but at that time when it was written, it was these laws were an act of love. And so he's looking at these people saying, you guys are missing the point. The point is... Love. I'll, I'll give you an example of this. And I've probably used this example before. Um, Mother Teresa passed away a few years ago. Um, I was at this conference once where this guy named Shane Claiborne was giving a talk. And he is one of those people who actually interned with Mother Teresa. And he said, you know one of the things that really moved me about working with her is that every once in a while we get these big shipments of used shoes because people around the world, they donate shoes to, you know, people in Calcutta, and Mother Teresa had this one rule. And this is like, this one rule was, before anybody gets their shoes, I get first dibs. Mother Teresa says, that's the one rule. I get to choose my own pair of shoes before anybody else does. And so as soon as the shoes get here, she runs over, opens it, and the stench comes up, like, oh, that smells really bad. And she goes through all the shoes, she makes sure that they're all paired up, and then she picks out the worst pair that she could find. 
the ones that's disfigured, the ones that smells bad, the ones that are probably infected, she takes that and says, these are mine. Why? Because I want to make sure everybody else has better shoes than me. And Shane Claiborne, he said, after a while what I noticed is that there's one time I saw her feet without her shoes on, and I noticed how disfigured they were. And he said it was probably because after all these years, she picked out shoes that were uneven, the ones that were not the right size for her. Whatever it was, it caused her feet to be disfigured because she loved everybody else more than she loved herself. And Jesus is looking at this saying, who do you think in my kingdom is the star? The person who gave up her own wants for the sake of loving everybody else, the people who are, you know, like Mother Teresa, or the person over here who's had the most power in the world, who has the golden shoes, you know, has the shoes that is endorsed by the greatest athlete. It's like, which one of these two, Jesus would say, do you think God is more present in? This is the exact same thing that he's telling the Pharisees. You are using the things that God intended for love as a stepping stone for you to feel good about yourself, that that separates you from the rest of the community. And you're surprised why I'm yelling at you. <laughs> you're like, you're surprised that God is not with you on your endeavors. Do you know why? It's because my heart is with these people. The people who are giving up everything that they know and they own for the sake of loving the people around them. It's dangerous to lose the original intention. These Pharisees lost the original intention of the laws that God gave them. And it led them to this place of separation. And so the question that God is asking them is probably the same question that he's asking us today, which is this. Have you ever lost the original intention of God? Have you lost the original intention of God? And I was thinking to myself, have I lost the original intention of God? And I looked at my history and I realized, yeah, many times. You know, a long time ago, worship songs were all hymns. And they had this one book that they picked their songs from, right? But as worship songs started becoming more and more contemporary and more pop and stuff like that, worship songs became this thing where it's like, you know, uh, you know the original intention of worship is this ritual where we stand before God and we, for at least one time a, a, a week, we stand before God and say, yes, the world does not revolve around me, it revolves around you. It's a good, a good reminder that the world is not about me. But now I realized, at one point in my walk, I, I realized when I'm picking out songs or when some people are leading worship and I'm sitting there in the congregation, I'm like, ah, I don't like that song. I, that song is too slow for me, so I'm not going to sing that, but I want to sing that song. Or if people say, Kotz, which song should I pick? I would start thinking, well, that song is popular, so I'm going to pick this song. This song, eh, it's too slow, so I'm like, you know, or that's out of my range. And all of a sudden, worship has become about my preference all of a sudden, right? The original intention was lost, and in doing so, I've lost, you know, it's actually accomplishing the exact opposite. I've become more, worship has become more about me than it has become about God. Or maybe prayer. Prayer is a time where we commune with God. To remind ourselves how big God is and how small I am and that he knows all things that I really know nothing. But over time, as I'm praying, I found myself just making demands like, God, I think this is how you should run the world because I know more than you, right? And after a while, after I've been praying for a while, I realized I've lost the original intention of prayer. Prayer was a time for me to sit and receive from God so that I could gain some wisdom from him, so that I could learn about how much he loves me, right? So he could tell me how I should run my life. But instead, over time, prayer has become a time for me to tell God how he ought to run the world, how he ought to work in my life. I was making demands on him 
And I realized I lost the original intention of, of prayer, and for that reason, I'm accomplishing the exact opposite. Or maybe it's evangelism. Maybe you're telling people about, it's like, yeah, this love of God is so cool. I need to tell you about it. And as you're having that discussion with them, the person says, yeah, but I don't believe in God. And you're like, well, I'll give you some proof. Let me give you some proof that God, here, here, well, look at this article. Like, oh, look at this. Did you know there's archaeological evidence, right? It's like, yeah, but, you know, that's not a credible source. Like, oh, and before you know it, you're trying to convince them. It's almost like a debate now. And at the end of the day, you won that debate, but you lost their friendship. And you realize, wait a minute, the original intention was to let them know that God loves them. But the ultimate result of this is that I pushed them away. Have you ever lost the original intention of God? And I think all of us have at one point. And for you and for me who have lost that intention, Jesus giving this reminder to us, which is this, love is the original intention. Love is the original intention. We must remember that in all that we do, we have to keep reminding ourselves that love, sacrificial love, when we put ourselves second to other people, love needs to be the original intention or else we might end up accomplishing the exact opposite of what God intended to happen. I want to close this time with giving you this one verse. Oh, actually, three verses, but it's in one section. It's one paragraph. And in this one paragraph, one of the first Christian leaders, his name is Paul the Apostle, he says, I totally finally get it now because Paul used to be a Pharisee, the very people that Jesus is scolding at this part of the story, right? It's like, you Pharisees, you're doing these things for the wrong intentions, right? And so Paul, eventually, after a lot of killing Christians and stuff like that, eventually he came to his senses and he decided to follow Jesus. And when he started following Jesus, he wrote all these letters telling people how he got it wrong. And one of those things is in this verse. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is what he says. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, meaning if I have this special ability to understand all these languages and speak in ways that people might not understand, which is seen as super you know, religious, it's a very spiritual thing to do, right? He says, but I do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I could say the most eloquent words that you might think is inspired by God, but if there's no love behind it, if my intention is lost, my sound is might as well be my son playing the drums, which is psh, 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 psh. It's like, it really means nothing. And then he continues, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and all, and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. He says, if I'm able to give you the most spectacular insights of God's heart, but I don't have love behind it, it's really accomplishing nothing. In some cases, it's accomplishing the exact opposite. I am nothing. And then he concludes this section by saying this. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, meaning if I become the most generous person in the world, even if I sacrifice myself, but love is not behind it, like, oh, look at Kotz, he's a martyr. It's like, yeah, I did that so that you would notice me and that you would love me more, right? It's like, if that's your intention, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Have we lost our original intention? He's saying everything that we do has to start from a place of love. And it has to end in a place of love. Because without love, all that we're doing is for nothing. As a matter of fact, it might end up accomplishing the exact opposite of what we intended to do in the first place. Have we lost our intention? 
the original intention of God. Let me pray for us.